Hello, pretentious cinephiles and everyone else. It's me, your host, The Film Doctor. And I can't believe it's already season two. It has been quite a while since we wrapped up season one. And I don't know, you know, I'm not even going to check the date of the last episode or even try to guess because it's just going to remind me of how long I've procrastinated. So here we are now. She's back and more pretentious than ever. So anyway, I knew I'd have to make another episode on a film by my most favorite director of all time. And that is, you guessed it, David Lynch. I mean, come on. If you know me and didn't know that he's my favorite director and my hero, you clearly don't know me at all. I love him. I simply can't shut up about him. He's the man. He's the best. He literally changed the course of my life since I started watching Twin Peaks when I was 14. I'm just like the most devoted David Lynch propagandist ever. So what a way to kick off season two in true film doctor fashion by analyzing the essential David Lynch film, Mulholland Drive. There is honestly a lot to unpack here with this film. It's a great one to analyze, and it's definitely up there with my favorite David Lynch films and films of all time. With my favorite being Blue Velvet and then Wild at Heart, so Mulholland Drive probably takes the third spot, and then Eraserhead, then Lost Highway or Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. One of those. So there you have it, my uncalled for list of top five David Lynch films, in case anyone was wondering. Anyway, back on topic. So, this film is considered a mindfuck, to say the least. It really does fuck with your head. I mean, for me personally, it's one of the easiest David Lynch films to stomach. You're gonna find me using that term a lot instead of saying, this film is the best, or this is the most inappropriate, or gross, or boring, or complex film, etc., I'm just going to say this is easy to stomach, this is difficult to stomach, because I find that's the best way for me to describe how easily a viewer can take a film. How do I determine this, you may ask? Well, it's just a matter of whether it weirds you out to the point where you think, God, this director needs a psychiatric evaluation because what sane person in their rightest mind would come up with this twisted stuff? <clears throat> Lars von Trier. Yeah, you get the picture. Mulholland Drive, for me, is the easiest of Lynch's films to stomach because, yeah, it really fucks with your mind and you're just left questioning everything, so it's definitely not the easiest to understand, but I do think it is the easiest to stomach because it's a film that people who aren't familiar with David Lynch or those who don't really plan on getting too into his filmography can enjoy because... It's just nowhere near as fucked up as Blue Velvet or Racerhead. So, I think, if I were to recommend a David Lynch film to someone, it would have to be this one. Whilst it's definitely not my personal favorite, it's just more palatable, because if I recommended Blue Velvet, Eraserhead, or Inland Empire to just anyone, it would be like the cinephile equivalent to doing a speech in school about a really dark, touchy topic and then getting sent to the guidance counselor for it. Yeah, people would be quite concerned. 
I think the fact that this film isn't anywhere near as mental and sick in the head as Lynch's other films means that the characters, while still being a bit mental because it's a David Lynch film so there's no sane people here, we really don't need to psychoanalyze them on such a deep Freudian level. There's still room for that because the psychology of this film is amazing, but specifically for this episode, that will be missing an opportunity to talk about one of the first critical film theories that I became interested in, and that is postmodernism, or POMO for short. You know, you have no idea how long I've waited to be doing an episode about this theory, so here we are. A postmodern lens is a very interesting perspective to analyze films from, and what makes it unique among all the other critical theories we've done in the first season is that it's more plot-driven than the others. Yeah, in postmodernism, there is an element of delving into the human psyche, but it's not as intense as psychoanalysis because... A lot of postmodernism focuses on the plot, and often how disjointed it is, and why it's structured and presented the way it is. In comparison to the other theories we've discussed, there's less digging out and trying to get answers based on how the character behaves and thinks. It's more, what message is the structure of this plot trying to convey to us? So without much further ado... Let's get into the bare bones of postmodernism, and then we'll start analyzing the film and discussing how this theory is applicable. Yeah, let's analyze this. Wait a second, just hold that thought. I'm first going to give a very brief synopsis of the film, then talk about what postmodernism is. And then we're going to put the two together and analyze the postmodern elements of this film. So here's a very basic outline of the plot. It's about Betty, an aspiring actress who comes to Los Angeles with the hopes of making it big in the film industry. And she comes across an amnesiac woman who just survived a car accident, and her name is Rita. Or is it? We don't know, she's amnesiac, so she's probably having a bit of an identity crisis. And throughout the film, Betty helps Rita figure out her true identity using a number of clues. And then it becomes a bit of a twisted love triangle and like doppelgangers are involved in shit and the dark side of Hollywood is revealed. So it does sound like some pretty twisted Lynchian nightmare so far. But really, this description is just scratching the surface. And there's so much more to uncover than this. I am going to start contradicting myself by saying, Alright, here's a little bit of an oxymoron for you. The postmodern elements of this film are not so much the content and structure of the plot. It's really not that. It's more about the absence of the plot and how the plot breaks the rules of the classic plot structure. So, it's not the conventional, linear, beginning, middle, end narrative. No, a postmodern narrative is completely non-linear. So now that we know that, 
Let's talk more about the postmodernist theory now, shall we? The idea of postmodernism is that reality is not set in stone, but instead it's constructed by us individuals as we create our own reality and truth. In ethics and philosophy, the concept of alethic relativism is very crucial to postmodernism because alethic relativists believe that there are no absolute truths. An objective of alethic relativism is to see things from different points of view and acknowledge that all perspectives, beliefs, and truths are valid, so therefore there is no definite one. In epistemology, which is the area of philosophy that studies the nature and limits of human knowledge, this form of relativism implies that all versions of rights, wrongs, and truths are equally true. It is merely up to the individual to determine what their truth is. This makes reality and truth out to be things that are not of a collective, but individual responsibility, because it implies that these things don't exist in the first place, like there is no reality, there is no truth, etc. It's not concrete or unequivocal, it's just... Think of it like a blank canvas. So the individual is the painter of the canvas. And it's up to the individual to fabricate. Well, not really fabricate, more like interpret or create what their reality and truth is. So if we're using the artist analogy, the individual is the painter, and reality and truth, it's the canvas. Whatever they want to paint on that canvas, that's their reality, that's their truth. If you listened to the previous episode, the one on psychological manipulation and atonement, you can probably see how this is also very applicable to that film because it involved the character of Bryony, that name is a curse word here, we don't like her, so throughout the film, Bryony is presented to us as being the puppet master because she has her version of the truth and her recollection of what happened. Well, that may have been false to us and to the other characters in the film, but from a postmodern lens, it's definitely the truth to her. So this is where holding a postmodern belief can be harmful and destructive, but we're not going to go there because that was last episode, so let's focus on this one. But yeah, we will talk about the dark side of postmodernism and how self-destructive it can be in Mulholland Drive, so we will get there. Anyway, to sum this up, postmodernists believe that morals, truth, reality are all up to individuals to decide because they don't really exist in the first place. I guess... Everything you are taught about right and wrong and good and bad, you can just throw that right out the window. We won't be needing any of those today. Nah, kidding. Don't take my word for it. I just... I'm not saying there are no truths and lies and whatnot. I'm not saying that postmodernism is correct and that we should all be postmodernists. Well, in fact, that is quite a contradiction because that will be going against the postmodern values in the first place if I said that. I am saying that if we want to think like a postmodernist or analyze things from a postmodern lens, it really helps to know that everything you value and believe, whether you're lying or truthing, it's all your individual reality. Another key postmodern belief is that 
The media plays a huge role in shaping our truths and realities, particularly in this modern world. Before I elaborate on this, because trust me, I will be doing a lot of elaborating. First of all, how exactly did this postmodernism concept come about? Let's take the post prefix off the word first, and that will give us modernism. Modernism, like postmodernism, is both a philosophical movement and an art movement. This episode is great. I'm sitting some philosophy papers at university, so I think this is going to gear me up real well. Anyway, the modernism movement involved breaking away from tradition and social norms. Experimental, abstract, and avant-garde art were some of the results of the modernist art movement. A pivotal moment in terms of modernism was the Roaring Twenties, because women would wear short dresses that weren't very figure-hugging, and they'd cut their hair really short for, like, a more androgynous look. Like postmodernism, individualism was a key part of this movement because it embraced rejecting archaic and conservative beliefs, and it valued innovation and experimentation. The differences between modernism and postmodernism are that modernism relied on using deeper levels of philosophical logic and rationality in order to reject realism, or what was considered conventional at the time whereas postmodernism was based on an unscientific and irrational thought process that rejected logical thinking and often questioned the existence of logic in the first place. And if we're looking at the style of a narrative, modernism rejected what was conventional in literature and whatever media they had at the time, so the goal was to push the boundaries of societal norms. Postmodernism, on the other hand, uses these typical conventional narratives and structures deliberately, almost ironically, and with the objective of proving a point. And a lot of the time, that point is that the absurd concept of truth and reality simply cannot coexist with individual thought patterns. The whole concept of postmodernism seems kind of like a contradiction. And that is correct, because a postmodern narrative entails using fragments of a linear narrative and then completely derailing the whole thing. And this further emphasizes that realities and truths are subject to change, because only the individual calls the shot and determines these things. Because if reality, well, the concept of reality, doesn't exist in the first place, that means that there are only interpretations of it that exist. Every version of the truth is shaped by a perspective or viewpoint. I think, now that we're familiar with this theory, the ways that it is applicable to Mulholland Drive are making more sense. It is presented to us as a quote-unquote love story in the city of dreams. In true David Lynch altruism, it's not just about this, and the city of dreams part is quite symbolic because a lot of what happens in this film isn't real. In fact, there's a lot of dream sequences. You know, Lynch is known for his surreal, dreamlike scenes and dreamscapes in general, so this film epitomizes it. Just like any postmodern narrative, 
it leaves the viewer doubting whether what happened is real or not. That is the exact feeling that postmodernists want to leave you with. You're doubting the concept of reality and your own reality and whether things are true or not. It really does mess with your head. For a lot of people, when they first watch this film, it either goes completely over their heads and they only see it on a surface level of depth, or they just go, what the fuck did I just watch? And are completely disoriented and confused about what was going on with the plot. And just to add more layers of confusion, there are parts of the film that aren't just hallucinations or dreams, but instead are idealized versions of a character's reality. Character of Betty, the perky, blonde, girl-next-door, archetypal ingenue, is not real. Hate to break it to you, she doesn't exist. She lives the idealized, fabricated reality of Diane Selwyn. Diane is very troubled, and Betty represents a more ambitious, sane, and charming version of herself. This should be quite obvious to pick out, since they're both played by the same actress. Naomi Watts, I love her, she's incredible. The disjointed structure of the plot allows us very disoriented viewers to piece everything together based on the clues we have. Kinda like what Rita and Betty do for a large portion of the film. This tells us that whatever we interpret or make of the truth, the fact that it's open to interpretation means that it's not really about, well, the film, it's not really about trying to figure out what's real and what's not. It's more about how we interpret Diane's reality and how she creates that reality of hers. In this episode where I talked about the blank canvas analogy, well, we're going to use it again. Hold on, let me just gather my thoughts for a second. You know, I really do love my analogies. They seem to work quite well. When I was thinking of some to use for this episode, the first one that came to mind, because, you know, I do love a good Shakespeare reference, I've made quite a few in this series, and that is the parallels between Twelfth Night and Mulholland Drive. Because there's a weird love triangle involving doppelgangers, and there's identity confusion, and Twelfth Night begins with Viola being shipwrecked, and Mulholland Drive begins with Rita in a car crash, so... Both of them end up surrendering their true identity, and then getting caught up in a bizarre love triangle, etc. God, I really need to learn how to stay on topic. I'm going down a rabbit hole. Back on topic. Hang on. Hey, what was I going to say before? I think... Oh yeah, my analogies. My blank canvas analogy. Oh shit, I've lost my train of thought. I got too carried away with that Twelve Night reference. Uh, anyway... We can compare Diane's idealized reality to the blank canvas, because if the canvas represents the quote-unquote non-existent concept of reality and the individual represents the artist and therefore the paints and paintbrushes and stuff represent interpretations, so it's the individual projecting their interpretations and perspectives onto the blank canvas that is non-existent reality. And we see that Diane is painting herself this reality of hers, and she's got the creative license to do whatever she likes. 
If I were to take a more conventional approach to this, it would be different because the painting would already be painted and it would be like admiring something in an art gallery because it's painted already, it's been sealed and preserved or whatever, and you're just looking at it. So that represents the fact that if you're not looking at it through a postmodern lens, it's already sealed and set in stone. That's reality, you can't do anything about it. So that's the complete opposite of the postmodern lens where it's as if the canvas is already blank so the reality isn't there in the first place and it's up to the individual to create it. I really hope that that explains it because the postmodern approach is. So since it's a blank canvas it represents reality so there's nothing on it therefore implying there's no set in stone reality and it's up to the individual to paint this picture. So that means it is the individual's responsibility to create their truth and therefore that is the truth because it's an individual thing not a collective. It also hints that interpretations create reality and this is what the film is portraying to us. Since dreams and aspirations in the Hollywood acting industry are a big part of this film, this already feeds to us the postmodern belief that the media influences how we create our idea of what's real. Well, actually, it's not really our idea of what's real, since postmodernists don't think that if you believe something's real or true, that's just your individual belief. No, they believe that it is the truth. It means that your fantasies can actually be the reality. Since Diane creates Betty's story as if it's actually what happened, one thing that I noticed is that this shows that Diane doing this is the result of what happens when you adopt the postmodern practice of letting the media create your truth. See, this can be both very relatable to us watching the film, yet we're still so unaware of how harmful it can be. I don't know about you, but for me personally, with the media that I consume, not only does it greatly influence my personality and my fashion sense all the time, it also causes me to project my interpretations of my life into the idea of it that I have in my head. Romanticization is a big part of this because I'm often romanticizing my life and I'm convincing myself that this romanticized, idealized version of my life that I've created really is my truth. I know that many of us are guilty of it. I guess you could say we're postmodernists without even realizing it. See, I'm doing a Diane Selwyn without even noticing. We can pick up the fact that Betty the idealistic, aspiring actress with a romanticized perception of Hollywood exists because of Diane convincing herself that Betty is her. So that's why those scenes that are meant to be her postmodern idealized reality are presented in a more dreamlike way than the others. This continues to emphasize the idea of Diane's postmodern fantasy as it makes it up to the viewer to interpret what's her twisted reality versus her postmodern fantasy. These fantasies are brought on by a heavily drug-induced sleep and she's rewriting a more promising and happy version of her life. Also, what's the story with Rita? Well, this is a confusing one because we don't know if she's another idealized version of Diane or whatever. 
She's quite an enigma. Since there is no definite idea of what she's meant to be, let's discuss some of the interpretations of her. We're given clues that she's another version of Diane and that she and Betty are two archetypes. With Betty being the, as I said before, girl next door ingenue type, while Rita is the seductress femme fatale type. The use of archetypal characters can be far more significant and complex than we think, especially in a David Lynch film, because we've seen this in Blue Velvet too. This directorial choice makes us less fixated on the depth of the individual characters and allows us to see the narrative as more of a collective. The different feminine archetypes is a very interesting concept. There's actually this test that I took online because, you know, I love my psychology and personality tests to help me get to know myself, and it's called The Different Feminine Archetypes. And I got The Lover, and there's this other one, and it's The Different Feminine Seduction Archetypes, and I got The Sophisticate. And I think that it really does sound a lot like me. Anyway, back on topic. From this, we can interpret that Betty and Rita are complete polar opposite feminine archetypes. What I can make of this is that they represent two different fanciful sides of Diane's psyche. As these two archetypes are seen as being very appealing and attractive, while being completely different, we can interpret that they're both meant to be Diane. They represent the conflicting parts of Diane because Betty's more innocent and wholesome, while Rita's more seductive and enigmatic. Diane believes that these two polar opposite archetypes would advance her as an actress. Since they are archetypal characters and Diane is not an archetype, but more complex and deep, Betty and Rita are exaggerating the most desirable traits of Diane, while rejecting her other layers of troubledness. Since Rita spends a lot of the film trying to figure out her identity, while Betty, as an aspiring actress, has almost an overtly optimistic perception of herself and her life, this could be symbolic of Diane and how she projects her conflicting perceptions onto this dream sequence. One interesting theory I picked up from an online discussion on this film is that Diane's dream sequence is similar to Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Except... It's a more dark and twisted version. This is because she casts people from her real life in the dream sequence. The people in her dream sequence, while still being the same person, act differently to their real life versions. And since everything that happens in this dream state is all out of the disturbed mind of Diane, she plays the writer, director, and producer, so she calls the shots. Now we're coming full circle. It's all making sense now. This is exactly what a postmodern narrative is. All the characters in the dream state are presented as fitting into Diane's narrative while they're actually not like that in real life. We're now familiar with what's real and what's not in this film, but since it's all out of Diane's mind, it doesn't really matter because it's all presented to us as the truth. What makes this film really great is how it's all open to interpretation and we can decide what we interpret as reality or fantasy, and this just embodies the theory of postmodernism. Well, this is really just one of many interpretations of the film because we're looking at it through a postmodern lens. I think 
Analyzing it from this perspective opened up my eyes and made me realize that this film really isn't how we initially interpret it, and that there's so many different layers of depth to uncover. I think that's part of the beauty of it and what makes it so special. We're reaching the end of this episode and I just wanted to say this has been one of my favorite ones. And I really love this theory. It opens your mind a lot, it's very interesting, and I hope that you learned as much about postmodernism as I did in this episode. And thank you David Lynch for gifting us with the cinematic masterpiece that is Mulholland Drive. Now that it's time to wrap up Season 2, Episode 1 of The Film Doctor, I'm gonna leave you with something to think about. I want you to think about how a postmodern worldview can be both harmful and important to your life. That is what I'm gonna leave you with. One last thing, make sure you followed this podcast because, trust me, what are you doing with your life if you haven't already? And I've got heaps of interesting theories to discuss in the upcoming episodes, and I'm super excited about the films we're going to be analyzing. It's going to be great. Alrighty. Farewell, pretentious cinephiles. I'll catch you in the next episode. And if you think I've shoved enough philosophical and existentialism paradoxes down your throat, don't cough them up. Keep them there, because you're going to need it for the next episode. Because we're going to be discussing one of my favorite Jean-Luc Godard films from a Beauvoirian perspective.